As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And we're going to do uh, a quick fire Q&A episode today, um, starting with, uh, I should say actually before we start, as always, we love to hear your questions and feedback. So please do keep sending them in. Email molad, M-O-L-A-D at premier.org.uk, or you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at T-S-W-Y-A-T-T. Uh, our first question today comes from an unnamed listener who says, um, how should we think about, as Christians, about alternative health? Is it all quackery and should there be a Christian presumption towards Western slash scientific medicine or is it actually fine to also be interested in alternative medicine? Go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting, controversial stuff. Um, I mean, you won't be surprised to say that, to hear that my mainstream approach is to say that I'm a supporter of scientific medicine sometimes called allopathic medicine in other words we try to understand what the mechanisms of disease are and we then try to um, oppose those uh, those mechanisms in order to restore things back and, and bring healing so allopathic medicine is immediately distinguished from homeo- homeopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine is based on this theory that actually you should stimulate the um, the symptoms of disease, but you do it with unbelievably sub-microscopically amounts of the um, of something which actually s- stimulates the same um, the same symptoms. So, so that's the fundamental theory behind homeopathy. And uh, it's got a long, long history, homeopathic medicine going back hundreds of years. And it's still popular. I mean, it would be certainly one example of alternative medicine. So I think it's really important to understand that alternative medicine is a kind of ragbag term which covers a huge number of different, completely different things. So it's probably not very helpful to put them all together. Uh, But homeopathy would be one example um a whole number of clinical trials have been carried out to try to ascertain whether or not homeopathic 
medicine is uh, is helpful or not and i'm not an expert in this area but although there have been some trials that have shown benefit overall it's been very difficult to demonstrate a convincing effect of homeopathic medicine whereas for instance you know there are homeopathic vaccines which have been tried uh, to, you know to help to prevent infections and so on but if you compare those with the traditional vaccines and you know we've talked at length previously about the covid vaccines they have repeatedly demonstrated an incredibly powerful effect in terms of uh, reducing death and uh, severe disease from uh, the virus infection so I think it, it, it's it's hard to um, demonstrate efficacy. Having said that, homeopathic medicine continues to be really quite popular. And I think there's not much doubt that part of that is the difference in experience of going to see your GP compared with going to see a private homeopathic practitioner. Um, and this is generally true for all alternative medicine specialists, you know. I'm afraid the experience of going to see your GP, particularly with a relatively minor problem, such as backache or fatigue or uh, uh, some other uh, medically minor problem, I'm afraid the experience of going to see the GP can be pretty unsatisfying. You know, you're allowed 10 minutes if you're lucky. Um, The GP is often very distracted, spends most of the time staring at the screen, trying to find your records um, and after 10 minutes, you're told, time to go. Uh, if you're not better in a few weeks' time, contact me again. If you compare that with going to see a private homeopathic practitioner, they could easily spend one to two hours taking a history, um, inquiring into every possible aspect of your feelings and and your experiences so far and your symptoms and then giving a very detailed discussion of what the source of those different symptoms are, followed by providing a prescription. And and you can see that that very experience, many people found beneficial and valuable just to have someone to talk to, someone who listens, someone who's interested, someone who appears to know something about what they're talking about. So um, that's true for many. Even though they actually don't, and their prescription (laughs) won't work. Well... It's offered. It's the it's the experience. It's the whole thing, isn't it, of being listened to? And the fact that this thing may in fact be a placebo. I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence that placebos work. Um, you know, placebos actually make the symptoms get better if you believe in them. Um, but can it be ethical for the doctor to sell you? You know, at cost. This is not provided under any kind of you know NHS or you know state insurance plan. You know to sell you what is effectively a, a sugar pill or a vial of water, which has been diluted so much that there is literally on an atomic level, no active ingredient remaining. Even if we're aware that it might have some placebo benefit, is that an ethical thing to do? Well, this is where the controversy comes in. And I think I, it's, it all depends what you say, what you say, what, you know, it's clearly, wrong and unethical to mislead mislead people um but that doesn't mean to say that there isn't a place where doctors can give a prescription which is effectively as a placebo i mean um 
I've done that in the past in my medical career. What I don't say to the patient is that this contains a magic ingredient, which is which is uh, going to treat your problem. What I might say is that, in my experience, some people have found that they feel better after taking this kind of treatment. Um, you know, it, it's. I don't think I'm trying to mislead. Uh, in in those circumstances, so so, go on, go on and come back at me. It's interesting. I didn't know you'd done that. I thought there were. <laughs> I, I thought there had been some kind of. There were some kind of rules in the NHS about, in all seriousness, about about not 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 allowing not not offering what you know to be placebo treatments, even if there is evidence that it might actually help. But um, we can talk about that. Maybe a side a sideline. I guess the, my, one of the things I struggle with with alternative medicine, things like homeopathy, um, or you know, there's lots of other things. You know, lots of other people go for, you know. What is it? Is it? Uh, I never remember. Is it chiropathy or chiropractic? You know, chiropractic in the spine, yeah. which can apparently mm, treat yeah. all other kinds of internal medical things, um, and things that maybe more blur the line between whether they're you know outright kind of woo woo quackery and or you know scientifically rigorous medicine. There's a kind of grey area in between. Is um, you're right that a lot of it is about it makes people feel better. They have a positive experience. It normally does no harm. What's wrong with it? I do wonder as Christians, are we not, do we not have a duty to kind of live in the truth and, and, and seek to uphold and perpetuate with our, our pounds and pence that we spend, you know, institutions and cultures and movements, which actually, um, yeah, are grounded in the, in the way, the, the truth of the world that's created as it is. And for all its flaws, scientific modern medicine is constantly striving to test itself against the world as it actually is and say, does this thing actually help people get better? And there are lots of examples where, you know, doctors have been doing things for hundreds of years and then they've gradually over time realized this actually doesn't help. This is actually a waste of our time. This is that this is a, we're letting our patients down by spending time, you know, whether it's bloodletting or whatever else we've been doing this for years, but it doesn't work. And they've, to their credit, they've abandoned that and they've moved on and found there's a sense of progress towards trying to understand human beings better and how we can make them better. Whereas it feels like a lot of alternative medicine is about how can we make the patient feel happier in themselves and feel like they've, they've been listened to and that I care about them. And the fact that I'm actually doing something I know has no meaningful benefit is a kind of, you know, lesser concern. And I just, that just feels, yeah, I feel uncomfortable about that. Yeah, no, I understand that. And, and, you know, these are controversial and difficult issues. And, and you know, there, there's quite a lot of nuance necessary here. So one thing to point out is that um, we've, we've talked before about the fact that a Christian understanding of humanity sees us as having physical, uh, psychological, relational and spiritual aspects. And that also applies to our diseases. So even if I have, say, an infection, which is due to microbes multiplying in my tissue, uh, there are physical processes going on. But that's also affecting me psychologically. The symptoms that I'm feeling of, of fatigue, of, of tiredness, uh, whatever it is, pain and so on, these are deeply affected by psychological factors. And, you know, in more serious 
diseases are affecting my relationships and ultimately my spiritual relationship to God itself. And that it seems to me a holistic understanding of healthcare and medicine means, therefore, that actually we should be treating all of these levels simultaneously rather than saying all that matters is the bacteria. So let's let's just find what's going on with the bacteria and, and then problem solved. Human beings are not as simple as that. And that often the psychological elements are, are very, very important. It's often the psychological elements are much more important than the actual physical disease processes. So much of the time that is lost to work, the, t- the devastation of the disease causes uh, is often due to psychological factors. So, so therefore, finding ways as carers and as therapists, which actually make people feel better, uh, even if at one level they don't directly alter the pathological process. I mean, interestingly, they can work at one remove. So if you feel better, your immune system improves, your uh, various cells of your can function more. There's a lot of evidence showing this interrelationship between the mind, the emotions, the body, and, and so on. So I don't think it's as simplistic as saying that medicines should just focus on the physical. Um, but I do think there's a strong principle that we mustn't mislead, we, that it, we are based on the truth. Um, and so this is where I think one just can't make blanket statements about different kinds of alternative medicine. I mean, at one extreme, I know someone who is a a Christian herbalist. Uh, she spent a whole of her life, um, you know, researching uh, herbs. Uh, she's qualified in herbal medicine. She's not medically qualified, but she sees um, people privately. Uh, she understands that if it's if there's that there are some things she can't treat, and she will refer on to um, to a doctor for a second opinion or for review or so on. But there are other conditions where, you know, she's um, the herbal traditions say that this particular herbs are effective and they've never been, most of them haven't been um, submitted to a sort of really rigorous double blind control trial. Um, But I don't think that means that there's no place for this kind of herbal medicine. I think it, it, it needs to be done within a framework of where people understand who they're seeing, they understand what the limitations are. But she is capable of, of spending an hour or more with an individual patient, giving them a great deal of attention. And even if the herbs that she gives actually don't have a great deal of direct action, the, the whole process of seeing the therapist may actually be extremely valuable. Yeah. Okay. A couple, couple of things to come back on there, I think, and come to mind. So I, I wholeheartedly agree that we don't want to get sucked into a kind of physicalism when it comes to medicine and that absolutely we need to treat people as holistic, psychological, social, spiritual beings. Um, but you can do that in the scientific western tradition right that's why we have invented things like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like this which don't have any impact on the 
the atoms and molecules and viruses and bacteria going around my body, but we know can be profoundly transformative in healing for people. And and likewise, you know, with herbs, you know, I'm aware that there is a, um, a really powerful chemotherapy drug that is fundamentally derived from compounds found in yew tree clippings, right? So I've got no objection to whatever is being used to treat someone. It's not it's not the stuff, you know, that is bearing into the body, but it's about what the, the fundamental distinction seems to me between scientific medicine and alternative health is that scientific is is not what they're doing because you know a lot of the talking therapy you might receive from a psychiatrist is not going to be that different from sitting down with a you know a crystal healer. Um, but the difference is, is that the psychiatrist is working within a framework which says, I'm I'm open and willing to hold up my method of treatment to the external rigorous scrutiny of other experts who will test it against placebo and see if it works. And fundamentally, a herbalist, a crystal healer, a chiropractor or a homeopath are not operating the same framework. They're not willing and they won't accept that if we did study been found actually giving people who have a cold St. John's wort does literally nothing. The herbalists are not going to stop giving people St. John's wort because that's not what they're trying to achieve. They don't care whether the science shows that it works or not. And that's the key difference. If the science showed that St. John's wort cured common colds, you'd start getting it prescribed from GPs because they are agnostic about the thing they're prescribing. What they care about is, is the truth. And it feels to me as Christians, we really need to side with people who are seeking truth rather than saying, um, you know, this is a tradition I find helpful, but I don't actually care whether it works or not. Yeah, but I, it's a bit of a caricature, I think, that you're presenting because, um, I mean, I basically agree with you. And, and I think the fact that alternative medicine continues to be so popular is to quite a large extent a, a very bad reflection on the National Health Service in the UK and on um, orthodox health practice around the world. It's because people feel so uh, treated as a machine. It's it's this mechanistic, uh, faulty machine approach, which is deeply unhelpful. Uh, and, And yet so much of what people experience when they engage with um mainstream healthcare so i think it is possible to keep the best of both i think it's possible to have a rigorous scientific foundation um with a genuinely individual person-centered psychologically sensitive um and also open-mindedness you know oh well science doesn't believe in that so it's a waste of time you know science is not the solution to everything. So there are many things about being human, which science is incapable of capturing. And therefore medicine is both an art as well as a science. At least that's, I I was trained in that way and I still want to hold to it. I don't want to reduce it to a mechanism, a mechanistic approach to finding how the machine has gone faulty and mending it. I, I agree with I agree with that, and I certainly agree that it would be great to be able to integrate into traditional medicine um, a lot of the, as you say, the kind of person-centered, holistic nature of some alternative therapies. What I disagree, actually, quite strongly, is I don't believe the reason alternative medicine exists is because mainstream scientific medicine is kind of overrun and 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 lacking in warmth. I actually have a more pessimistic view of human nature, and I think 
alternative medicine will always exist, even if in a hypothetical universe, we could triple funding for the NHS and give everyone their own personal GP at their beck and call. And I think that because it it basically is the same reason why yeah, fake news and tabloid tittle tattle will also exist is because people, human beings prefer comforting titillating uh, stories about themselves and the world that scratch their itch rather than the thin gruel of messy you know truth <laughs> and you know the reason that tabloid newspapers and clickbaity websites still exist is because they are feeding people what the people want and that breaks my heart as a journalist who strives to do something a bit more you know truthful and rigorous but actually telling truthful stories about the world is dissatisfying and people would prefer the kind of cheap saccharine sweet hit of of tabloid news and for the same reason they will prefer the cheap saccharine sweet hit of of a homeopath and that's my fundamental conviction <laughs> well what a misanthrope you've become <laughs> all right i think Shall we, we should move, move on, on to another question yeah <laughs> Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You are listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. A second one actually is something that you spotted uh, and wanted to, to to dwell on briefly, which is a fascinating article uh, published by the American uh, news outlet, the Free Press, um, and it's entitled "I Left Out the Full Truth to Get My Climate Change Paper Published" by a researcher called Patrick Brown. Do you want to briefly explain what what he what he kind of admits in this piece, and, and then we'll take it from there. Yes, it's a fascinating thing that just uh, came out just um, in early September um, by a guy called Patrick Brown, who's a climate scientist and clearly uh, a highly regarded and prestigious one. And he was a a co-author of a paper published in Nature, which is one of the world's most prestigious scientific journals, uh, called climate warming increases extremely daily. Ex, sorry, climate warming increases extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California. 
In other words, the basic message of this paper is that, as we all know, there have been these terrible wildfires, um, particularly in North America, including in California. And the paper demonstrated that it was climate warming which was increasing the risk of of these wildfires. And And so the fact that he gets this paper published in Nature proves that he is, you know, the real deal when it comes to, to climate science. But he then goes on to say, actually, I had to leave out a whole lot of, of truth, scientific truth, out of that paper because it wouldn't have got published. And, and what, what he, he says is that basically getting a paper into um, nature, getting it published is so competitive. Um, he says there are six times more PhDs earned in the in the US each year than there were in the early 1960s. So it's become more difficult than ever to stand out from the crowd. So while there's always been a tremendous premium placed on publishing in journals like Nature and Science, it's also become extraordinarily more competitive. And he says it's the biases of the editors that uh, that changed the way he wrote his paper. In other words, he left out a lot of other information. He says, it is quite true that climate change does increase extreme wildfire behavior, but there are also other factors that can be just as more important, such as poor forest management and the increasing number of people who start wildfires. But we didn't bother in the paper to study the influence of these other factors because he knew it was less he would be less likely to get the paper published. And I was just quite shocked, really, that um, uh, he... he uh, points out that he left out a lot of important and balancing information in order to get his paper published in Nature. And you know what, Dad? This actually leads on very nicely from my previous thought, closing thought on our last last part of the podcast, because <laughs> the truth, the truth, as the scientists have discovered, is messy and complicated. And it is that, yes, climate change is making wildfires worse, but no, it's not the only factor. And actually, there might be some other things we could do, as well as trying to tackle climate change that would limit the risk of wildfires. But why did he cut that stuff out? He explains it's because he didn't think the nature editors, the gatekeepers for this kind of research, would want to tell a messy, divided story. They wanted a clean, sweet hit that says climate change, a thing that we all know and agree is bad, is making wildfires this big problem even worse. And that feeds into the kind of simplistic narrative that our culture is asking for on climate change. That's right. And, you know, the, um, the, re- the reality is that, yes, climate change is very significant, but there are a whole lot of other mitigating factors which um, the, the editors wish to downplay. For instance, he points out the fact that actually... Uh, heat-related deaths are not increasing across the world. They're actually declining with time, basically because human beings are getting much better at managing uh, heat in in that sense. And also um, crop yields far from declining, which has been the great worry. In fact, the evidence is so far that crop yields have been increasing for decades despite climate change. Um, And they also, uh, he says that... um, the authors downplay practical actions that can counter the impact of climate change. Um, 
but these things don't get published. By studying solutions rather than f- focusing on problems, we're not going to rouse the um, the concern of the general public, and that's the reason that editors want to focus on this on this one fact that it's that it's climate change, which is and and the negative factors of climate change. Do you think this is a fundamental issue with the kind of scientific journal publishing method? Because you know, nature nature's its incentives are all about we want the wider world outside of academia to take notice of what we're publishing and so therefore our incentives are to publish a more simplistic more eye-catching version of the truth rather than it in all its nuance and complexity and actually that is just those incentives are just baked into the process and so it might be climate change this example but I'm sure there are other fields where researchers are finding if they presented a paper that that went against the countervailing wisdom or that um, didn't have a kind of big, sexy, scary number at the end or a statistic that could get, you know, an uninformed, non-scientific slob like me interested, it's just not going to get published. And that's actually baked into the whole way that we produce and publish scientific research. Well, it's really fascinating this because it it has massively changed and it changed in my career as a research scientist. So if I go back to when I started in research, in medical research, um, the whole atmosphere in medical research was was different in that it was basically accepted that the most important thing was to do high-quality research um, that was reliable and accurate and done to a high level of standard and that provided you did the research like that uh, and it was good quality research the fact that it didn't receive a lot of public attention the fact that it got buried in a relatively unknown paper but was read by some of your colleagues and added to the general sum total of scientific knowledge that didn't matter as long as the science was high quality um, people continued to fund it the government funded it uh, charities funded it. Uh, it was regarded as the most important thing was to do high quality research. And, you know, research scientists by and large were regarded as pretty boring nerds who beavered away producing incomprehensible papers. Um, well, over the, my time uh, in the field, there was this dramatic shift that increasingly the important thing was that your research had public impact the the important thing about high quality research is the amount of impact it makes and uh, this was a shift a large largely because the funders were raising questions the funders were saying the government was saying look we're putting all this money into medical research you know how much good is it actually doing you know our voters want to know why we're spending billions of pounds on medical research. And the charities were saying, yeah, we're raising all this money and we're funding you, the medical researchers, but, you know, how much good is it doing? And, and if we can tell a really good story, we can raise a lot more money for cancer research or for heart disease or for premature babies or whatever. And so increasingly the whole focus changes to... Um, how do we demonstrate impact? And so in terms of journals, research journals, 
Now it's the high impact journals, which are really important. So that I was told by my seniors in the university, there's really no point, John, in in, in just putting uh, papers into uh, journals which are going to read by other pediatricians. You know, yes, it might help to improve the care of babies, but that's not the point. You know, we want you to get journals into nature or into science or into the Lancet. Uh, and if you're not going to get your papers in there, then frankly, we're not interested in your research. It's of no value to the university. It's not increasing our impact. And um, that trend has just has accentuated and increased more and more. And so everybody is now looking for impact and impact equals um, media awareness, high profile and uh, <clears throat> high impact journals. And, and of course the editors are looking for impact because they want nature to still have the highest um, ratings and therefore uh, unfortunately, I think the whole direction of science can become perverted. It, it's influenced by fashion, therefore. Uh, whatever is the fashion, it's, in, it's influenced by having a single clean message, which is what uh, this particular climate scientist says. You know, the, the truth is much too messy and complex and nuanced. Uh, we've just got to have a very clean, simplistic message. Climate change is bad. It's causing wildfires. We've got to stop climate change. Do you think there's any way to walk back some of those changes that have unfolded? Could could we unpick the kind of network of incentives and funding and get back to a, a cleaner, purer, simpler time where research nerds just publish their papers to other research nerds? I would love it if it was possible. And I don't think we've got to go the whole way. Of course, there has to be some accountability. There has to be some quality control. Um, but I do think this um, this emphasis on uh, impact has become a very distorting thing. I mean, people talk about doing medical research, which is sexy, like finding a cure for cancer, which you can, you know, some great breakthrough, or research which is unsexy, like incontinence pads or disability aids or so on. But actually, in terms of human happiness and welfare, improvements in incontinence pads and disability aids can be far more significant than some so-called sexy breakthrough, which, which makes it to the uh, television news or is all over the internet. Hmm. And isn't that what these kind of methodologies we've talked about before, like, you know, measuring things like quality adjusted life years is an attempt to kind of put some scientific rigor on that and steer research and funding towards that, which is going to, you know, increase the greatest benefit. Shouldn't that be kind of um, chopping off our biases and, and, and directing science towards that in medical science, which is going to be cause the greatest number of, you know, life years for the greatest number of people? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So quality adjusted life years, you're right, is an attempt to do that. But actually, it's a very um, distorted attempt. It brings its own problems, because nobody ever died from incontinence. You know, so actually, it doesn't feature in your life years, it can be incredibly significant to you. But 
if it doesn't change your life expectancy, it's it's invisible as far as um, qualities go. So, so um, I think you need. There are things called disability adjusted life years. There are various other attempts to um, capture the really important outcomes, but uh, of of course they're often much more difficult to capture compared to very hard statistics on life and death. Hmm. Just a final question then before we wrap this up. We've actually talked unintentionally quite a bit over the last few podcasts about kind of problems in the scientific method, uh, you know, controversies around research. Can we find truth for, through, you know, studies and the scientific method? There are some Christians maybe listening to this, maybe out there who are kind of starting to lose faith in the whole enterprise. Would that be a mistake, you know, or do you think actually it's right for us to be a bit sceptical, a little bit more cynical about, you know, this great kind of temple of truth seeking that we're told the science scientific establishment is? Well, I I think because science is carried out by fallen, fallible, broken human beings, we shouldn't be surprised that it's therefore affected by these things like competition, uh, like fashion, like failures in peer review and so on. Uh, Having said all that, I think I am completely convinced that the scientific method, when it is done properly, when it's done with integrity, when it's done with transparency, when it's done with accountability, is... um, a fundamental good which fits with a Christian understanding of reality. We we talked in a previous episode about creation, the idea of creation theology, that that God has designed the creation in a way which is comprehensible, in a way which is non-capricious, which is which is ordered, which is law-like, so that we can understand them. So as the great astronomer Kepler said, when I do my astronomy, I am thinking God's thoughts after him. So that idea of a kind of, that to me is the heart of the the true scientific method. And it's a gift that God has given us uh, to, to unpick and understand the fundamental uh, law-like nature of, of the universe. And, and that includes medicine and healthcare, the way the human body works uh, so the fundamental method, I feel, absolutely is right and fits with with Christian um, thinking. But we've got to retain our critical faculties. We've got to, um, you, you know, it, science can become an idol. It can become broken. It become distorted. And therefore, we need to be thoughtful and critical and make sure that it's always being carried out to the highest scientific standards. Good. Good. Well, um, I think that's probably enough on scientific journals uh, for now. I'm sure we'll return to this topic in future episodes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please do carry on sending in your questions or or kind of news stories you'd like us to respond and comment on. Uh, You can email us molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Or you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at T-S-W-Y-A-T-T. don't forget john's website johnwhite.com full of interesting things to to look at um and we'll be back with another episode next week but until then bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a 
podcast from Premier Unbelievable.